We take ourselves to the study of Luke's gospel. So take your Bibles and swipe your screen, turn on your power, open up the pages, whatever it is you, whatever it is you need to do to get to Luke 10. Those of us still in old school are going to open our parchment. And um, as you know, we have been listening to the Lord Jesus Christ extol the power and the sovereignty and the wisdom and the goodness of God, even in His saving work, even His redeeming work. And in verse 22, we've come across a statement that we have said now several times is, un- is very encouraging and yet at the same time can make us uncomfortable. Verse 22, Jesus says that all things were handed over to Him by His Father, and, and of course this is amazing that the Son is the focal point. The Son is the only Savior. The Son is now the one with judgment in His hands on behalf of the Godhead. He is the one uh, that will judge by means of the Father handing it to Him. And then this statement about revelation and who it's revealed to and how it is revealed. He says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son. And so if there were nothing else and verse 22 ended there, everyone is shut out. They're the only ones who intimately know truth, know the way things really are, know what's coming, the truth about heaven, hell, reality, eternity, all the things past the barrier we can never go, all the limitations, our finiteness leaves us with. If verse 22 ended there, we're all shut out. God is the only one who understands and knows all of these things and there is therefore no hope with just that reality. And if that's where verse 22 left it, we might be mildly uncomfortable with the idea in verse 21 that God hides the truth from some. You remember we rejoiced to know that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. We like the idea that God gives grace to the humble. And and after all, at times we say, well, the proud, they deserve it. They deserve to have the truth hidden from them. Sometimes we forget ourselves and from where we've come But there are many, the Bible attests to it, and even life itself tells us that there are many who look at life circumstances and it doesn't seem to soften them, the futility of life, the trials of life, and they just get harder and harder and more and more proud. And we might have even rejoiced that God justly responds to the proud heart by hiding the truth from them, as verse 21 says, and we even loved the idea that God graciously responds with compassion to those who see themselves as nothing. They come to life knowing that they're nothing from the hardships of life, the emptiness of life. They're, they're brought to the place where they're low and they see no other, no other hope than to turn to God if indeed He is there. We like that idea, that He overcomes our unbelief. We even rejoice that the Father and the Son are in lockstep. If the Father wanted to save but the Son didn't love His will and didn't want to do His will, then no salvation would happen. Or if the Son wanted to save because He loved us and He lived with us and He saw the pain of life and the Father didn't want to save, it still wouldn't matter. But we love the idea that the two know each other's will, they love each other intimately in the Spirit, uh, making all the Godhead uh, will and purposes in harmony, all of that coming together in harmony and bringing it powerfully to pass. We love that. And we love the fact that the Godhead agreed in time past and eternity past and decreed to save so that forgiveness can come to sinners like you and me, even, 
eons later. But then, verse 22 says at the end of it, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now you have language of determination. In fact, this particular word group and the word for will that we translate will is the more, the, the more strong word for will used in the New Testament. Many words are used. One in particular not used here, but used in John 5, that the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. That's the word for desire. And, and it's true, He does desire and therefore gives life. Here, the word is more like determination. He reveals Himself to whomever He determines to reveal Himself. Wow. That sounds an awful lot like the Son's will is the only ultimate cause of a spiritually blind soul having the truth of God revealed to them. That's starting to sound like the dreaded P word, predetermined, predestination. Some might be thinking, I don't really want to go any further. Don't tell me this verse is teaching that God reveals the truth to whomever He wills and conceals it from those He does not will. Don't tell me that God has predetermined this great plan of saving souls. It sounds like you're going to start talking about the fact that God has predetermined souls to glory in His mercy. People don't like talking about predestination. Try to find other ways to get God off the hook in more moral discussions. Nearly 20 years ago now, Bethel Seminary in Minnesota had a bunch of seminars on the doctrine of God and classical theology and what does God really know? And they concluded after several seminars by professors that were innovating the idea of God's morality and trying to get God off the hook for His sovereignty, that they came up with the idea that God doesn't really know. He doesn't know the future. They called themselves open theists or process theology. God is processing like we are. In order for mankind to be truly a moral agent in God's universe the way He created it. And in order for us to be really genuinely free as we understand it, then ultimately God can't possibly know the future. He doesn't know the future. He has no control over it. And if something bad happens to you, then He's as miserable about it happening to you and had no control over it. And he, He's resourceful. He'll, he'll work, you know, whatever He possibly can to help this become somewhat of a com comfort and take the edge off. But He has no power over it, didn't ordain it, doesn't control it, isn't sovereign, isn't bigger than all that. They felt that, you see, if someone was suffering, that would be a... A nicer God to relate to someone, hey, he feels what you feel, and yet, you know, he, he, he had nothing to do with any of this, and he can't control it, and so therefore he's resourceful enough to sort of take the edge off of it, but it was almost as if, though they eventually had to come out and admit it, in the beginning discussions, it was almost as if they were saying, suffering itself. Natural evil, moral evil is meaningless, gratuitous. It's just a part of it. God can't do anything about it. He hopes to be resourceful enough to clean up the mess behind you, maybe cover the tracks a little bit of the suffering, maybe help your scars callous over. The Bible doesn't reveal truth, beloved, so that it's palatable or according to our liking. If the scriptures catered to the way we wanted to hear and understand truth, it would no longer be truth. It would cease to be truth. 
The Scriptures would just be another ancient book without supernatural character, just another ancient piece of literature to be studied like any piece of literature from the past. But in fact, the list of proofs for the divine origin of Scripture itself, of that list of proofs, this particular argument is the most undeniable. That is to say that the Bible reveals what it does without elaborate explanations. When the Bible talks about God and salvation and says things like at the end of verse 22 without explanation, well, he reveals it to whom the Son wills to reveal it. And you read it and, oh my goodness. And suddenly you're set on edge. Why? Because when Scripture talks about God, He doesn't do it to make it palatable or according to our liking or even our frame of reference. He reveals Himself so that we have comfort and confidence in knowing precisely that He is sovereign and in control. And in fact, He doesn't give elaborate explanation because it is a divine work. If mankind had written it, merely a human work, we would have gotten rid of such embarrassing ideas. These things are true because God says them, whether or not they're palatable to our human heart. Let's just do a little exercise. How many of you have been in awe of passages like Proverbs 21.1? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Wow, his heart. His inner life is like a channel of water in a river. He, he turns it wherever he chooses to turn it in the hand of the Lord. That's profound. Or how about an application of such a principle of sovereignty in the life of people like Eli's sons? 1 Samuel 2, 22 to 25. They wouldn't listen to their father, but here's the Lord's commentary on it. They wouldn't listen to their father for the Lord desired to put them to death. Wow, he left them to their sin, left them to their rebellion, withheld grace from them, did not open their minds to the truth because he desired to punish them. Prior to those verses, 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 8, listen to this. You stand in all of these kind of passages. It is Yahweh who kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. If you want a more concise statement, the prophet Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am Yahweh who does all these. Verse 9 of that same chapter. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, causing uh, an, an earthen vessel, an earthenware vessel among vessels of the earth, quarreling with his maker. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Isaiah 43, 13. Even from eternity I am he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. Jeremiah, in his lamentation, gets even more intense. Jeremiah 3, 37 and 38, Who has commanded and it came to pass unless the Lord has ordained it? Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that good and bad come? Wow. And in a context of salvation, Ephesians 1.11 says that we have an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. 
And by the way, Scripture doesn't apologize for setting one mind-blowing truth right next to its apparent opposite. We call it apparent opposite because we know God cannot contradict. It's just that when we come up to a wall and something contradicts itself in our minds and doesn't seem consistent, the wall stops us. You can't go over it and explore things God hasn't revealed, but you must all come all the way to the wall, and the only way you can describe some things is, wow, there's an apparent opposite here, and yet God harmonizes them. Who hasn't stood in wonder at how God can speak two truths in the same breath as though they're perfectly compatible, which our minds simply cannot reconcile. Say, give me an example. When the people of Israel were being delivered from Egypt and Moses was at the helm, God said things to Pharaoh through Moses, said things about Pharaoh, and ultimately you know because in the same account, the same event, as God was interacting with Pharaoh, things like this are said. Exodus 7.14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn, he refuses to let the people go. Wow, culpability, responsibility, sin, rebellion, he's hardened, he refuses, he's at fault. Chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. I'm going to harden his heart. And the Lord did. But, the, but Pharaoh's stubborn, God said, he refuses and add to that what Paul says about this in Romans 9, 15 to 18. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Listen, God is establishing over and over again that he does not reveal what he reveals about himself in a way that is palatable to us. It's clear to us with the Holy Spirit, the implications are illumined to us, but it isn't palatable to the finite, and it's certainly not comfortable if you don't want to receive it. Not comfortable. Turn to John chapter 1, where tensions like this live in the same passage in a couple of short verses. John chapter 1. We have to move fairly quickly here, but a few examples will help, or not. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him, oh, we love that language, Receive Christ, won't you? Embrace Christ. Put your faith in Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the, the privilege, right is kind of a strange translation. He gave them the privilege to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Oh, we love it. It's an evangelistic verse. You would say it every day. Crusades placard it all over the place. And then verse 13. These same ones who become children of God by faith, they were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In two verses side by side, no apology, tension. You have man's 
called to believe. You have man's faith expressed. You have repentance expressed. You have the culpability of man in the scriptures for not believing. And yet you clearly have here that God ordains it, works it, oversees it, overrides even evil acts as he did at the cross for his greater glory and good in his perfect plan and purpose. Look at chapter 3 of John's gospel and verse 18. He who believes in him isn't judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There's personal accountability. There's personal responsibility. There's moral, eternal consequence. It's personalized their sin, their unbelief, their darkness. But, verse 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light. Oh yeah, that's me. I came to the light. Absolutely. Man, I came. It's true. But, he came to the light in order that his deeds may be revealed as having been wrought in God. God did it. God produced it. God worked it. God ordained it. God orchestrated it. In John 6, you know the text well if you've thought, tried or tried to think through the sovereignty of God. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. And they were saying, you're not the Messiah. What, what, on what basis would you say... He, I'm not the Messiah. Well, because the Messiah would be believed by everyone in Israel because we're righteous and we're God's people and when the Messiah comes, we'll believe in him. And since people don't believe you, you, you can't be the Messiah. And he said, well, look, first of all, you, you see me. In other words, you see who I'm revealed to be as Messiah. You do not believe me, but notice verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me, who sent me draws him. So what he's saying to them is, you're guilty for your unbelief because you're a born sinner and you're a rebel. But know this, my credentials as Messiah are not dependent upon whether a person believes. All who the Father is drawing, they come. And go back to verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. The Father has given Souls to the Son in eternity past. John 17, 2 says the same thing. Jesus says they will come, and when they come, I won't cast them out. Because when God does the work, it's true faith. God draws them. And then there are statements like John three sixteen: Whosoever believes in Him will not perish. John eight twenty four: Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Personal culpability statements. But then you have Romans 1, you're without excuse. You knew God just from natural revelation and you did not acknowledge him as God or give thanks. Even when you become a Christian, the tension doesn't leave. There's tension all over the scriptures like this, even in the Christian life, such as Jude, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 24, now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling. God is able, God has the power, and yet paradoxically, you're called to moral responsibility, culpability, accountability. 
That's why you know this is a divine book. Human authors would have removed all that, of course. If you had written a book and somebody over here had written a book and you tried to put them together and say, this is a human book and we're going to say it's divine because we feel it's divine and it had all of these tensions and all of these apparent antinomies and contradictions, if it had all of those things in the supernatural revelation of who God is, human authors would have seen the apparent antinomies and they would have critiqued each other's paradoxes to, to exalt their own work. Oh, you know, when you wrote that book you call uh, a letter to the Hebrews, oh, it's full of contradictions. You know what they would have done? They would have relentlessly critiqued each other and they would have gone back and reworked the material in order to silence all the critics because this is their big work. They would have done that to remove all these inconsistencies But instead, what do we have here? We have, from start to finish, a massive catalog of unashamed supernatural claims, the theological mysteries and profound gaps between the divine mind and human understanding are so glaring, it would be ridiculous to suggest that men made all this up. Why am I saying this? Because when Jesus says that no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and those whom the Son wills to reveal Him... You read it and you're uncomfortable with it, but you should not take a faulty approach to it. We've always said that's a wall you come up against and you must worship at it. You try to press through to mysteries beyond what God has revealed, you're in trouble. You can't solve them philosophically, you can't solve them even logically, you can't solve them in in some sense uh, with a sense of your own justice. Nor is there any reason to solve them. The Bible doesn't solve them. God doesn't explain those mysteries and he leaves the tension all over the pages of Scripture and just says, now trust me. You could take a systematic theology approach where you interpret a passage based upon sort of a body of systematic truth that you think gets rid of the tension. And so somebody might say, well, I believe whosoever will may come. And so therefore, anytime the Bible mentions predestination or, or election, I just, I just explain it away or ignore it. Or you might have someone say, hey, God's ultimately sovereign and therefore we don't have any moral agency or choice. Well, neither is true. The Bible says you have agency and choice for which there's eternal consequences and yet God stands over all of it, overrides all of it, ordaining all of it for a grand glorious purpose and a perfect manifestation of his mercy and his love and his grace and his justice and his, his perfections. He stands over all of it, overpowers all of it so that even in human circumstances, particularly suffering, it is meaningful. It's meaningful. I was not a believer when my wife and I got married and, and what the Lord used to cause us heartache was to take our first child at five months old. We found him dead, our son. And I was not a believer, but when I came to Christ about a year later or so, I came back and revisited the issue. Is it meaningless? You know, I know, I know you hate evil, so I'm... The Bible's clear that you feel what I feel about evil and and far more because you're God. But is it meaningless or did you ordain it for a purpose that would ultimately bring about greater good in eternity whether I see any of that here and now? The scriptures are clear. When Joseph went through all of that moral evil perpetrated against him for years, he said to his brothers what his theology had taught him and he'd come to know. You meant it for evil, 
God meant what? He meant it. He wasn't just resourceful, sort of cleaning up the tracks behind him. God meant it. The evil you're doing, the evil you're guilty of, the moral evil you're perpetrating and for which you will be held eternally consequential and, and responsible, God meant it, ordained it, for good. It's true. You could take a word study approach. You know, you put all the weight of the meaning on the presence or absence of a word. Oh, if it says whosoever will may come and predestination is not even mentioned in John's gospel as a word, then... Or you could take the one theme solves all approach. If somebody can demonstrate that election is true, then all other tensions are off the table. There is no tension. I love it when people try to do that. Oh, there's no tension in this doctrine. Are you kidding? I mean, you get uncomfortable just reading the passages. There's tension all over this thing. God is not obligated to solve that, but it's ridiculous for somebody to say, I'm not going to go all the way to where the Bible takes me. Or even worse, for somebody to say, I'm going over the wall. I'm going to solve the tension on the other side. I'll meet you guys on the other side. No need. Go to Romans 9 for a moment. It's important that we just survey this a bit in our minds and hearts and I'll give you some implications here at the end, but you remember that because these things bring tensions and make us uncomfortable and raise questions in our minds, God always anticipates that. And in a particular passage spoken to a particular church where it was very, very important in the discussion of the gospel, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, anticipates questions. Questions about what? Mere questions? Lord, I don't understand. No, that's, that's true. You're not going to understand everything and you're constantly going to be coming back to the Bible in its inexhaustible depths and saying, Lord, help me. Give me grasp. Help my mind. Help my unbelief. Help me understand these things. Especially when you're going through affliction and suffering of a, a massive kind. Maybe not just natural evil or the course of things in the diseased life, but moral evil. Somebody does something against you. In those seasons, you're going to come back to the Scriptures over and over again and say, Lord, wash over my soul with that wall where I must worship so that I can know there's a, there's a side over the wall I can't see yet, but it will, it will make sense when I meet you. And yet, help me go all the way to the wall so I'm not burying my head in the sand and acting like the tension doesn't exist. No, what Paul anticipates here are questions that put God on trial on this issue. You say, well, what was the issue? Well, in summary, Paul had said to the Jews there, Israel is hardened right now. He had just finished saying in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate the elect, God's people, from the love of Christ. Can't be separated from it. If you're in Christ... God has decreed you, written your name down, as Luke 10 says. He's written your name down before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 4, you're chosen before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You cannot be lost. And Paul had just finished saying you can't be separated from the love of Christ. But, he says, my own kinsmen, the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God to whom God made promises, they're separated from the love of Christ right now. So you can imagine is God not faithful when He says He's chosen people? 
And so Paul basically in the first bunch of verses of chapter 9 is basically saying, no, you, you misunderstood. Salvation is not ethnically based. He never set his affection and love savingly on every ethnic Jew, let alone every ethnic Gentile of the nations that will be blessed. He never set his love on every single person within the nation of Israel born a Jew. He never said that. He set his affection on a remnant who would come through a promise by faith. You've misunderstood. You think that because he chose the nation to be a light to the rest of the nations that every ethnic Jew is elect. No, 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 you made a mistake. And that's what we're seeing, he says. Some in Israel have hardened even the leadership because they're not, they're not part of God's kingdom and they're proving it by their not wanting him. But then he makes some statements because he anticipates their questions about the justice of God. And notice here he says, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. Look, you don't get in because you are a Jew by descendancy from Abraham. Through Isaac your descendants will be named. What does he mean by that? The promise, the son of promise. Verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I'm, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, hadn't done anything good or bad, so that God's prompt purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. He said the older will serve the younger. Look, God is sovereign. And they would have complained, oh, you're bringing up, uh, Is- you're bringing up uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Well, of course Isaac was the, was the one because Ishmael was a half-breed. Hagar was a slave girl that, that Abraham collected down in Egypt when he went down there and lied to Abimelech and Abimelech sent him out with the spoil and his slaves. And that was Hagar. She's a Gentile. Of course Ishmael being a son of Abraham and, and, and Hagar was a half-breed. Of course he's not in. Isaac's in because he's a Jew. And he says, all right, I'll give you a better example. Jacob and Esau, they're both purebreds. They're both purebreds. And only one is redeemed. Wow. Why? Because before they ever did anything, God said the older will serve the younger. That's the way God ordained it. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking exactly what those in the church of Rome were thinking. Notice verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Notice his point. It's not that God wills or that it's some sort of capricious exercise. It's God wanting to express his mercy. I sympathize with the woman who said to Spurgeon, I don't like it. I don't like the idea that God is sitting there and people are wanting to come to him and saying, you're in, you're out. Spurgeon said, you're right, that you have a wrong idea of this. Nobody wants God. Everyone is running from God, shaking their fist in his face, and because he has mercy, he reaches out and saves. Now let's go back to our original exercise class a few weeks ago. If God saves no one, is he just? You have some visitors here. Sure would have been a louder answer. It's hard to admit, isn't it? If God never saves you and me, if he never saved Jerry Rag, is he just? 
That's a pretty nice guy, I think. <laughs> I mean, I didn't murder. Lied a few times. But, man, I had compassion on people now and again. If he does not express mercy on anyone, especially me, is he a just and righteous God? Absolutely. Here's the problem. He wants to manifest his perfections in toto, which means he wants to show what Paul says in verse 15, mercy. And verse 16, it doesn't depend then on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That verse makes you uncomfortable, but it shouldn't. That verse should cause your heart to just melt. Oh my goodness, God has mercy. That's what it depends upon. A merciful God. And he raised up Pharaoh, he says in verse 17, to demonstrate his power in Pharaoh that his name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Wow, the gospel came all the way to the United States and North America to my ears and your ears because God raised up Pharaoh and let, let the Israelites go and hardened Pharaoh. Wow, whose fault was it? Pharaoh was born hardened. So was I. So were you. We're all born hardened. And God can leave us in it justly and righteously. But he wants to have mercy. <laughs> he saves. Moreover, he wrote your name before the foundation of the world in order to have mercy on you. Now, you didn't know that. I didn't know that. From a human standpoint, just there I am in my sin, my blindness, doing whatever I want to do, thinking I'm the captain of my soul. Could lose my breath today or live 90 years. I don't know, but I'm just tracking along and someone somewhere in the providences of God begins to be a light. Why? Because there's something that happened that I don't know about. He recorded my name before the foundation of the world and though I'm a child of wrath, under his wrath, he is willing and wanting to express mercy. So he orchestrates all the circumstances to do it. One of which was the death of my son. Do you ever look back at your conversion and say, what did it take for God to save me? What did it require? I know now how God used that in my life. I know that. I didn't know at the time. I was a pagan. I looked at it as, leave me alone, God. Get out of my face. Why are you messing with me? Let me live my life. This is miserable. Even in my blaming God, I was acknowledging he was sovereign. God used it eventually to humble me. I look back on that now and say, oh, okay, well, that's what it took. That's what it took you to have mercy on this wretch whom you could have justly left in his sin. That's what it took. What about you? What does it take for you? God reaches out. Somebody said to me one time, so are you saying that somebody could reach for God and he would reject them? No, because reaching for God is a divine work. If you want Christ, you're elect. If you want Christ on his terms, you're elect. Because non-elect people, people who are left in their sin, never want Christ. They hate Christ. They always will, even if they're religious. They don't want Christ on his terms. They want a Jesus of their own making. So if you want Christ, God is moving. God is working. That's grace. 
if you want him on his terms. He's willing. He's working. He's moving. He's dispensing. He's manifesting his grace. So notice what Paul anticipates. Oh, you're going to say to me, verse 19, then why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Ah, this is a bad place to be. This is a really bad place to be. It's not a genuine question. A genuine question would be, wow, Lord, I've hit the wall. I'm worshiping you. I'd love understanding. Whatever your word can give to me, I bring myself under it and take it and take me as far as you want. In humbling me, in, in even the gap between me and you, take me as far as you want. Let that gap just crush my pride and let me never raise up a lofty thought against you and put, put you on trial. That's what a real inquiry is. What Paul anticipates here is someone putting God's justice on trial and saying, because I do not see on the other side of that wall, you should never find fault with morally fallen, guilty human beings. You shouldn't find fault with them. In other words, here's the depth of it. They're not morally responsible. They were born this way. They didn't ask for this. They're born this way. They're not moral beings at all, really, in that sense. Somebody did this to them. They're not moral beings at all. They, they're just, you know, living in a fallen world, going along. And if they hadn't been born in a fallen world, they'd probably be a pretty decent person. Maybe perfect. Neutral, in fact. Morally neutral. That's why Paul answers the way he does in verse 20. On the contrary. I love the, him, the fact that he starts that way. On the contrary. What does he mean? It's the exact opposite of what you might think. It's the exact opposite of the conclusions your mind is moving toward. And I want to remind you, he says, that you are a man, a human being, and who are you to answer back to God? In other words, who are you to put God in a position where he has to give you enough revelation to convince you, and if he's only given you what he's given you, he's somehow at fault. Paul is saying this is the height of arrogance and it's also absurd. Notice he pulls the clay and the potter analogy from the Old Testament. Hey, the thing molded won't say to the molder, why did you make me like this? There you are spinning a bowl on the wheel and you get it all perfect and you set it over here and you're going to fire it in the kiln and you put a cup on the wheel, a lump of clay that was sitting over there in the box. It was just clay. You throw it on there. Man, I got plans for a cup. And you hear this chatter in your ear and it's the bowl saying, why am I a bowl? It's absurd. More than that, though, it's arrogant to imagine that dead nothings know how to create a moral universe and operate in that to reveal what God wants to reveal in the making of the world the way He wants to make it, and then in the fallenness that He oversees, overrides, and even in in the Old Testament language, ordains that somehow it's all meaningless and He has no control over it to produce good. Romans 8.28, don't quote it to your friends if you don't believe it. And we know. It's conviction language. And we know that God causes what? Mmm. Superlative. All things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He does. The Spirit's interceding. He's making it all work out. It's not meaningless. It's not gratuitous. 
God does know the future. He's orchestrated it and ordained it and the tentacles and, and roadmap of glory and mercy and manifesting of his perfections will be made known to you and to everyone for all eternity when we arrive. But right now you're at the wall. And Paul says, who are you? Get down and worship. Does not the potter have a right over the clay? Doesn't he have a right over the clay? Of course he does. God knows, beloved. It isn't gratuitous. It's not meaningless. From the human perspective, yes. It wasn't you walking along and things happening to you that are meaningless or that God is somehow sovereign and as I was again told recently, well then that just makes us robots. I ask you, are you a robot? When you looked in the closet this morning, did you say, Lord, move my hand to whatever shirt you want? Are you a robot? When you fall down, do you say, I'm glad that's over? (laughs) You get up and try to stabilize and be careful. What's happening here in our thinking? Our, Our thinking is... That somehow because from a human perspective, I heard the gospel, I sensed the conviction of sin and guilt before God, I desired forgiveness and and new life, I wanted the joy of it, and I sought the forgiveness for my sin, whatever understanding of it I had, and I entrusted my whole heart and my eternity to faith in Christ, and my mind and my will jumped at Christ, though before it never would. It couldn't, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't accept the things of God, they're They're nonsense to him and he's not even able, so he's unwilling and unable. That was you and me. But from a human perspective, suddenly everything comes together and you jump to Christ. He is your only hope for whatever understanding you have. Everything is engaged. Desire, will, emotions, mind, thoughts, affections. Christ is all. But then you hear that God was behind all that and suddenly... You've got to put him on trial because it doesn't fit. This is Paul's whole point. It should absolutely humble us when Jesus says to the disciples, as Paul says in Romans, it is not up to the will of man. It is up to God who has mercy. From the divine, divine perspective, you know you've been drawn. You know before the foundation of the world that he has revealed he has chosen you. It is not for you to come to the scriptures and become some sort of prosecutor. To come to the scriptures and read that he reveals the Father to whomever he wills as the Son ought to cause such profound humility and gratitude. Yes, Lord, you opened my eyes. You made it happen. You brought me to an awareness of my sin I never had before. Oh, guys, if you'd heard the gospel growing up like I did, I wept over my guilt many, many times. I wept over my guilt constantly. I made so many quasi-whatever professions of wanting Jesus. I did not see my sin the way God sees it. That happened supernaturally. I should have. It was shown to me. I read it in Scripture. 
heard it in sermons, went to seminars on it, heard it from my father. God had to move, and when he did move, so obvious. It may not be for you a memory of a moment. It may be a gradual realization, but if you're saved, it happened. And the profound humility that should come over the soul when you see that the Lord wills to save, and when he wills to save, he does save, and when he does save, he secures those whom he saves so that we never lose heart and we never lose hope. Suffering isn't meaningless. God ordains what he brings into your life. He says that. In faithfulness I have afflicted you. Psalm 119, 75. In faithfulness, O God, you have afflicted me. Psalmist knew. Why? Because he, he promises to anchor my soul to his oath. I'm not bothered anymore by passages that say it's not by the will of man or by, by human things, it's by the will of God. I'm not bothered by that anymore. Is it tension? Oh, it's tension. My flesh is bothered by it. You know why? Because we have a notion of autonomy. Furthermore, let me just say it again, as I've said before, if a church does not come to grips with this and preach how lost you are and how impossible it is to come on your own, your view of grace will be dumbed down, superficial, shallowed, and over time it won't even be recognizably, recognizably biblical. It won't. You must understand that it is impossible to come without the will of Christ revealing the Father to you. And when He does, because He's merciful, and He does do it, it should be cause for the greatest rejoicing, the greatest humility, the greatest sense of, why me? I know what I deserved. He didn't give me what I deserved. In fact, He protected me from what I deserved and gave me something I never could have merited. He gave me you, an eternity and an inheritance. Well, our time is gone. It's just an encouragement to have hope. Suffering is not meaningless. Run to God, run to Christ. If you're here today and, and you're thinking this through and you're saying, where am I at spiritually? That's good. This service was not meaningless to you. God loves you. He loves sinners. He will pour out his wrath if you die without Christ. He will. It will be forever and that'll be it. And um, there will be no second chances. But how, how loving it is for him to put this kind of straightforward, tense stuff right in our faces and say, now, now you've hit the wall, now worship me. Let's bow together. Lord, this has been a bit of a survey and a theological renewal and passages jump out at us, others we cringe and wince. So profound. But Lord, we're at the wall. Sometimes we try to go over it and when you don't allow it, we, when you say no more in Scripture than you say, we, we say, well then how do you find fault? We question your moral universe your wisdom, your power. And other times we're so afraid to face what the scriptures say because we don't like the tension. It cuts at our autonomy. It 
crushes the flesh. It makes us admit and confess once again that we shouldn't have been redeemed were it not for your decree and your love, your willingness, your mercy. And it's all for your glory. Throughout eternity, for you to be on display will be man's greatest blessing. There can be no greater blessing than to know you intimately for who you really are as your creatures and walk with you intimately for all eternity in all that that means, all that we don't even have entering our imaginations. What greater life could there be? And yet here we are, born fallen. Every single one of us, we reject it. We don't like it. We run from it. We we chase the sand that runs through our fingers. We, We run after wind, thinking it will satisfy. So, Lord, we confess the great hope and the meaningfulness that is our life having now seen it in Christ. And as a people who love you, who know you, we say how overwhelmed we are at your mercy. And those here who don't know you, how overwhelmed we are that you would love them enough to speak it to them. And that you would swallow up the offense and absorb the offense in your Son to save sinners. Pour out your wrath on him for us. Maybe this just profoundly humble us, make us thankful. Do your saving work. May we sow the seeds, not worry about whom you've set your affection upon and whom you're leaving in their unbelief. Just give the gospel to everyone to the remotest part of the earth as you've told us. You will do your mighty work. And we submit to it in Jesus' name. Amen.